the reading from Nehemiah is not the entire chapter of 13, but beginning at verse 6. But while all this was going on, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Sometime later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. Here I learned about the evil thing Eliashib had done in providing Tobiah a room in the courts of the house of God. I was greatly displeased and threw all Tobiah's household goods out of the room. I gave orders to purify the rooms, and then I put back into them the equipment of the house of God with the grain offerings and the incense. I also learned that the nations assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and, and singers responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. So I rebuked the officials and asked them, why is the house of God neglected? Then I called them together and stationed them at their posts. All Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine, and oil into the storerooms. I put Shalemiah, the priest Zadok, the scribe, and a Levite named Pediah in charge of the storerooms and made Hanan, son of Zachur, the son of Manatiah, their assistant, because these men were considered trustworthy. They were made responsible for distributing the supplies to their brothers. Remember me for this, O my God, and do not blot out what I have, to, um, what I have so faithfully done for the house of my God and its services. In those days I saw men in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. Therefore, I warned them against selling food on that day. Men from Tyre who lived in Jerusalem were bringing in fish and all kinds of merchandise and selling them in Jerusalem on the Sabbath to the people of Judah. I rebuked the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this wicked thing you are doing? Desecrating the Sabbath day. Didn't your forefathers do the same thing so that our God brought all this calamity upon us and upon this city? Now you are stirring up more wrath against Israel by desecrating the Sabbath. When evening shadows fell on the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I ordered the doors to be shut and not opened until the Sabbath was over. I stationed some of my own men at the gates so that no load could be brought in on the Sabbath day. Once or twice, the merchants and sellers of all kinds of goods spent the night outside Jerusalem. But I warned them and said, Why do you... Spend the night by the wall. If you do this again, I will lay hands on you. 
From that time on, they were no longer, they no longer came on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites to purify themselves and go and guard the gates in order to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember me for this also, O my God, and show mercy to me according to your great love. Moreover, in those days I saw men of Judah who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. Half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. I rebuked them and called curses down on them. I beat some of the men and pulled out their hair. I made them take an oath in God's name and said, you are not to give your daughters in marriage to their sons, that you are to take their daughters in marriage for your sons or yourselves. Was it not because of marriages like these that King Solomon, king of Israel, sinned? Among the many nations that was no king like him. He was loved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. But even he was led into sin by foreign women. Must we hear now that you too are doing all this terrible wickedness and are being unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women? One of the sons of Joadah, son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law to Sanballat, the Horonite, and I drove him away from me. Remember them, O my God, because they defiled the priestly office and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. So I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign and assigned them duties, each to his own task. I also made provision for contributions of wood at designated times and for the first fruits. Remember me with favor, O my God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray as we begin. Our Father in heaven, I pray tonight that you would help us to see afresh how beautiful Jesus is. Please, Father, uh, renew our vision. Help us to see in a, in a new and clear way how precious, how beautiful, how dear Jesus is to us. We pray this for your glory. Amen. We all like a good story which has a happy ending. We all like it when the couple finally get together, or we all like it when the villain is finally caught, or we all like it when the people who are trapped are, are rescued from a burning building or whatever it is. We all like a story with a happy ending. And over these last few weeks in Nehemiah, we've been treated to a great story. It's been full of um, opposition and setbacks. It's, it's had a hero who has rescued God's people. It's had um, great projects. And also, it has an, a happy ending. So in chapter 6, we are told that after just 52 days, God's people had managed to complete the walls around Jerusalem. A great ending to the building project. 
And then in the second half of the book, we've seen this focus on the spiritual building of God's people. And that too seems to be going well, coming to a happy ending. And by chapters 10 and 11 of Nehemiah, we haven't had a chance to study them together, but we find a, a sort of carnival atmosphere, a, a mood of celebration and great joy amongst God's people. There's singing and dancing and celebration, and you can just imagine the balloons and party poppers because God's people have done it. They're back in the land, they've rebuilt God's city, and they have rebuilt God's people. It is a, a great story with a happy ending, and it's a great note to finish the book of Nehemiah. Or is it? Because we have here before us tonight this, this rather odd chapter, chapter 13. It, it doesn't seem to quite fit the happy ending. It doesn't seem to fit the flow of the book. It's not a happy chapter. It's not a chapter full of balloons and parties. It's a, a chapter full of confrontation and, and rebuke and mistakes. Now, verse 6 tells us when this chapter takes place. So um, down in verse 6, but while all this was going on, I, Nehemiah, was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I had returned to the king. Some time later, I asked his permission and came back to Jerusalem. What we find in 13 is sort of an appendix to the main story of Nehemiah. It happens some time later. So Nehemiah has, has done his work in Jerusalem. He's gone back to Babylon and then sometime later, he's returned. And chapter 13 describes to us what he finds when he returns to Jerusalem. When he returns to the building project, he gets an update. So what should we do with this rather awkward appendix to this happy ending? How do we handle chapter 13 and the story of Nehemiah? Is it a blip, or just a minor setback, something to, to gloss over and move on? I think not. I think 13 lies right at the heart of the message of Nehemiah. Remember, we've been thinking about this question, what does it take to rebuild God's people? That's the question hanging over the whole second half of the book. And tonight in Nehemiah 13, we see further insights into what it takes to rebuild God's people. And it's a sobering message, but a message we need to hear today. So what should we make of this awkward appendix at the end of Nehemiah. Well, I've got two points, not three, um, but the first one is this. We see from Nehemiah 13 the persistent problem of sin. The persistent problem of sin. If you've ever tried to uh, do some gardening, then you'll know um, the satisfaction of, of weeding away and clearing a flower bed and stepping back and seeing how it's all come together that the flowers are in the right place and the weeds are gone and there's nice bare earth. And I sound very middle-aged talking like this, but um, gardening can be immensely satisfying seeing how the weeds disappear. But of course, if you tried that, you'll know that within, within a few days or weeks, the weeds come back. No matter how well you weed the soil, somehow, mysteriously, the weeds reappear from somewhere. And within a few weeks and months, they're back as strong as ever. And something similar is happening to the people in Nehemiah's day. 
there's been a great uh, weeding project. So chapters 8, 9, 10, great moments of, of confession and returning to God's law. The sin is being weeded out from amongst the people. But here in chapter 13, the weeds have returned in abundance. God's people have slipped back into sin. And so we see the persistent problem of sin. Like weeds, it, it doesn't go away, no matter how hard God's people try. And just notice how pervasive sin is within God's people. So it, it covers every area of the people's life. It, it begins with the leadership. Uh, in verse 5, we were told that the priest, Eliashab, had committed a sin by allowing a foreigner to buy it, to dwell in the house of God. Someone who was unclean brought into the temple area. So there was corruption amongst the leadership, amongst the priesthood. But it gets worse. There was, there was sin and corruption within the temple as well. We were told that God's people were meant to bring grain and food to the temple to feed the priests, to feed the Levites, to give them time and space to do their duty before God in the temple. But in verse 10, we're told, Nehemiah says, I also learned that the portions assigned to the Levites had not been given to them, and that all the Levites and singers responsible for the service had gone back to their own fields. The people were meant to bring the grain into the temple to feed the Levites, to give them time and space, but they had stopped. The Levites were hungry, had gone back to the fields to earn a living, and so the house of God was left neglected. The temple affected by sin. It seems that the people were too preoccupied with their own well-being, with their own wealth, their money, their possessions, and not willing to give to the work of the Lord. And it's gutting to read this because back in chapter 12, the people had been giving this very grain offering to the work of the Lord, and yet they've slipped in chapter 13. The next level is the marketplace. And so we read in verse 15. In those days I saw men in Judah treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in grain and loading it on donkeys, together with wine, grapes, figs, and all other kinds of loads. And they were bringing all this into Jerusalem on the Sabbath. There is some debate, I guess, amongst us today about how we should view the Sabbath and how Christ fulfills the Sabbath. But in the day of Nehemiah, it was clear that for God's people, they should not be working on the Sabbath. They should not be trading on the Sabbath. And yet it seems God's people had neglected that law and they were happily trading and selling and buying all kinds of things on the Sabbath day. Again, they were putting in front of God's laws economic welfare and status. And so sin had also spread to the marketplace. This was not a new sin because Nehemiah says in verse 18, didn't your forefathers do the same things so that our God brought all this calamity upon us and upon this city? They've been there. They've done this sin before. They should have known better. And yet we see here the persistent problem of sin. It keeps happening again and again and again to God's people. And the final level, the home, verse 23. Moreover, in those days I saw men of Judah 
who had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, half their children spoke the language of Ashdod or the language of one of the other peoples and did not know how to speak the language of Judah. Now, it can be quite hard to understand what's going on here. The point here is not racism. Uh, Nehemiah is not having a go at people for um, their choice of, of, of bride or groom from different countries. Uh, the Bible is clear that it's very possible to be a non-Jewish person and yet a, a hero of God's people. So think of Ruth, who was from Moab herself, someone who feared God and was held up as a hero for God's people. No, the issue here is spiritual purity. People from other nations didn't worship the God of the Bible. And so the danger here is that when you marry someone, well, you open yourself up to um, their gods, their way of doing things, their spirituality. And that's why Nehemiah is so concerned about the language of the children. How can God's people read the law of God if they can't speak the language? And also this theme is picked up, um, we're told in verse 26 that um, marrying foreign women was Solomon's downfall. It led his heart astray from God to worship foreign gods. We see in Nehemiah 13 the persistent problem of sin. At every level, sin has reinvaded the people of God and It is heartbreaking, isn't it, to read this chapter, chapter 13, after all the building work, after all the reforms, after all the dancing and singing and joy, God's people are right back where they began before the exile. They were doing so well, they had such zeal for God, and now they are back in their old ways. The persistent problem of sin. So what are we to make of this chapter tonight. Many commentators say that this chapter gives us many lessons on how to avoid spiritual decline, how to stay sharp spiritually. And I guess there are some good tips here. There's the need to stay spiritually pure. And uh, think of the warnings in the New Testament about not being yoked to those who are not believers. There's helpful insight about money and trading and not letting possessions uh, invade our view of God. But I think the main point of this chapter is not how to avoid sin, but rather we cannot avoid sin. This chapter is here to help us understand our own hearts, to help us understand what we're up against when we're trying to change who we are. And it shows us that sheer willpower and self-discipline is not enough. When I was much younger, I used to enjoy Uh, building sandcastles on the beach. I actually still do. But you can spend a a happy afternoon potting around making this beautiful castle. And uh, it's great to look at. You can step back and enjoy the handiwork. But of course, within a matter of hours, the tide will come in and wipe away all that hard work. And the next morning, all you see is a pure sandy beach, completely flat, no sign of all the hard work. And at times, as a Christian... Our battle for obedience and godliness feels like we're building this castle and we're making progress and things are going well. And then suddenly there's a setback. Something happens. We just let it slip and all that work seems to be wiped away. We're back into the old habits. We're back doing things we know we shouldn't be doing. And it's as if we hadn't done any work at all. The persistent problem of sin. And we have here in chapter 13 a a mirror 
as God's people slip back into sin, we see a reflection of our own hearts. The persistent problem of sin. That's the first lesson for us in this final chapter of Nehemiah. And the second one is this. The persistent need for a savior. The persistent need for a savior. When I was um, much younger, in fact, uh, very young, I used to enjoy helping my mum in the kitchen doing some baking. Um, I'm sure I was much more trouble than I was help, but I did enjoy being involved. And normally things were okay as long as my mum was around supervising what I was doing. Normally she kept me straight. But if she left me alone for any strength, a stretch of time, uh, things invariably went wrong. Uh, famously one time ending up with me actually in one of the pots. Um, but I was in need of, of, of oversight and of leadership and of care. And when I had that, things went well. When I didn't, things went wrong. And I guess in a similar way, this is the pattern of God's people. Time and again, when God's people have godly, careful, skilled oversight, then God's people thrive and prosper and they, and they follow God. But when they're left to their own devices, disaster seems to strike again and again. There is a persistent need for a savior, for a leader to guide God's people. And that's the theme of Nehemiah, isn't it? Nehemiah is raised up as a great leader, a hero for God's people. And when Nehemiah is leading, God's people do well. When he is calling the shots, God's people are on track, um, on tune, serving God. But when Nehemiah goes away, disaster strikes. And that is what's happened in chapter 13. He's been away, back in Babylon. And when God's leaders leave, God's people go astray. There is a persistent need for a savior, for, for a leader to lead God's people. And in a way, Nehemiah does a good job. He comes back and finds the problems and he steps in and he makes a difference. So, so in verse 12, we're told that because of Nehemiah's rebuke, verse 12, all Judah brought the tithes of grain, new wine, and oil into the storerooms. The people repent and they, and they start bringing the tithes they should have been bringing all along. Or in verse 30, as the chapter finishes, Nehemiah says, so I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign and assigned them duties, each to his own task. Nehemiah can say, I, I purified the people. I got them back on track where they should be. And we see here how, uh, how good leaders can really affect God's people. They can make a difference. They can transform how God's people are doing. And in a way, Nehemiah saved God's people. He got them back into the way of obedience, not rebellion. But without a leader, invariably there is disaster for God's people. There is a persistent need for a savior, for a leader. And Nehemiah did the best he could, I guess. Um, there's that refrain throughout the chapter where Nehemiah says to God, remember me for this, oh my God. Remember me for what I've done for your people. I've, I've done my best. I've done a good job. Before God, I am content with the work I've done. He has done the best, I guess, any person, any human could do. But as Nehemiah finishes, we, we finish on a note of uncertainty. And in fact, Nehemiah is the final historical book of the Old Testament. This is the final word about history before the 400-year silence, before the Gospels. And so the Old Testament finishes on a, on a note of uncertainty. 
What will happen when Nehemiah dies? What will happen to the sin of God's people? What about the heart? What about the purity of God's people? Will that ever be fixed? The Old Testament finishes on a note of, of uncertainty that we're looking for a, another leader, another savior, someone who will do the work that Nehemiah couldn't do. And 400 years later, that leader arrives on the scene, does he not? Like Nehemiah, a leader full of passion and zeal for God's work. Like Nehemiah, a leader with a clear focus to his ministry. Like Nehemiah, a leader who comes to God's temple and clears it of those who are, who are abusing God's temple. But unlike Nehemiah, this final ultimate leader goes a step further. He did something that Nehemiah could never do. He deals with the sin of the people. He is a savior for God's people by dying on a cross. There is a persistent need for a savior throughout the Old Testament. And in Jesus Christ, he has arrived. He is the ultimate Nehemiah. He is the savior for God's people. And I want to just spend a few moments as we finish looking at how Jesus is a better savior, a better leader than Nehemiah ever was. Firstly, on the cross, Jesus deals with the penalty of our sin. In other words, he, he takes on himself the judgment we deserve for our sin. Nehemiah could only tell God's people about the judgment. He could only warn them to avoid it. Jesus actually takes that punishment onto himself. He deals with the penalty of our sin. On the cross, Jesus breaks the power of our sin. We are no longer slaves to sin, but we are free to serve Christ. Nehemiah couldn't do that for God's people. He could only give them God's commands, but he couldn't change the people's hearts. But on the cross, Jesus broke the power of sin. The illustration is often used of the D-Day landings. Some of you may have heard this before. When the Allies landed on the beaches on D-Day, a decisive blow was dealt to the Germans. That was the, the moment when the whole war shifted. Once the Allies had managed to, to get a beachhead established, then the end was guaranteed. The Allies would win. But of course, there were many months of fighting to take place before the final ends of fighting, before VE Day. So yes, a decisive victory on D-Day, but much fighting to do before VE Day. And on the cross, if you like, Jesus deals that decisive blow to the power of sin. He breaks it. And yet there's much fighting for us to do until VE Day, when the fighting is over. But crucially, we are free now to fight sin. We're not slaves. And because of Jesus, we have the spirit to live in us, to lead us in that battle against our sin. So unlike Nehemiah, Jesus breaks the power of sin in our lives. And finally, on the cross, Jesus guarantees for us that on one, one day, we will be free from the presence of sin. One day, we will not have to battle anymore with those habits and desires. We will be free from sin, free for eternity to live with Jesus in the new creation. Throughout the Old Testament, there is a persistent need for a savior. 
Nehemiah points us forward to long for a savior who would rescue God's people from their sins. And in Jesus, we have the fulfillment of that longing. What does it take to rebuild God's people? How can we be certain that we are involved in that building project? That's been the question we've been asking these last few weeks. And ultimately, the answer is found in Jesus. We have a persistent problem, our sin. We have a persistent need for a savior, and that need is found in Christ. We all love a story with a happy ending, and even though Nehemiah doesn't finish on a happy ending, it points us forward to the day when Christ came to earth and died for us, which is, of course, the best of endings. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the lessons of Nehemiah and thank you that we see in the people of Nehemiah's day how our hearts think and behave. And Father, we thank you for the reminder tonight of our sin, our constant battle with our habits and desires. Father, we thank you that you've given us a savior, a savior better than Nehemiah, a savior who frees us from our sin and who guarantees for us a wonderful future. Father, please help us to see afresh how beautiful Jesus is. Help us afresh to cling to him and to no one and nothing else. Amen.